The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Life in Exile, a study of the book of 1 Peter. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from the book of 1 Peter, chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to them. This is the word of the Lord. This is Rob Spikstra. He is one of our, he and his wife, uh, our members here at Sacred City. He's the headmaster at Morningstar Christian Academy in Bettendorf. Um, he's a, a man who serves us very well. Uh, he's in my missional community, which is a, a huge blessing to our MC. We love that. Um, but he's here to, to preach the gospel for us this morning. Uh, we desire at Sacred City, uh, even as we're raising up men to be elders, we're also raising up men who, who can preach the gospel and who can share that load and and that joyful burden here at Sacred City. So um, we're thankful to have Rob here this morning, and I'll, I'll give it over to you. Thank you, Ben. Appreciate it. Well, we're going to pray in just a minute here, and I'm going to tell you two reasons why we need to pray this morning, just in case you don't, uh, don't have a compelling reason to, to, to pray. Uh, first of all, um, uh, the difficulty is I'm preaching, um, and not Justin. Uh, I confess that when I come in on a Sunday morning, I always kind of look down to see who's got the headset on, because uh, uh, I appreciate his, his message. I know his messages, and I know you appreciate it as well. And in some regard, that is good, because uh, it is good to uh, appreciate the man who uh, brings the Word of God to you. You get used to uh, his uh, mannerisms, uh, the, kind of the, the, the lilt of his voice, the way he brings the Word of God. And in one regard, it really sets our it sets my day, it sets my week when I can hear that, hear that again. Um, along with that, with uh, Justin, he does two things. One is he, he interprets scripture, and he's very good at that. Uh, he, he goes to the word of God and is wanting to know what does God's word have to say to us. But secondly, he does, uh, Justin is really good at um, interpreting culture. And so he takes God's word and then he uh, helps us to see how it applies itself to uh, to God's word. And in some regard, he, he's gifted in both of these, these areas. And I have to tell you that it's not easy to have both of those, those gifts. In one sense, it comes easy to him. He's, got a, he's like a double, uh, uh, what is that, a shotgun, you know, double barrel shotgun. Um, most guys uh, only have one barrel or the other barrel. Um, and so it seems to come really easy to him. And so uh, we do appreciate your preaching, and, and uh, it's, a, it's a real blessing to us. So it's going to be difficult because you don't have him this morning. Um, uh, secondly, uh, it's difficult because of the passage um, this morning. I, I just want to read for you what the commentator had to say here. And this was um, encouraging to me as I was preparing and discouraging to me. Uh, encouraging because, oh good, um, it is a terribly difficult passage. Uh, it, it, the commentator says, among today's interpreters, this passage has the reputation for being perhaps the most difficult 
in the New Testament. Certainly, the pa- yeah, you're welcome. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Certainly, the passage assumes a familiarity with images and traditions alien to the modern culture. And moreover, there were uh, are an unusual number of textual and le- lexical difficulties within these few verses. And then they quote uh, this commentator quotes. Martin Luther, you know, the one who started the Reformation, you know, the, the, our, kind of our forefather of, of the Protestant Reformation, he, he said, quote, this is a strange text. <laughs> and certainly a more obscure passage than any other passage in the New Testament. I still do not know for sure what the apostle meant. <laughs> So here's two difficulties that we have before us. So uh, what I would like to do is then let's just ask God's uh, help as we, as we come to his word. Father, we, we do come and pray uh, help. Um, Father, I'm a sinner. Uh, my family knows it well. My dog knows it really well. Hmm. Um, Father, we're sinners sitting here. And while we should be here for the word of God, we confess, Father, that we fall into wanting to hear um, your word in certain ways. And so, Father, help us. Um, Help us to hear your word. Help us, by your Holy Spirit, to hear the gospel um, again as we need it. So please uh, be gracious to us, we ask. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, as I was uh, reflecting on this passage again, uh, to really to understand it, we need to, we need to know this, and that is that really it's just a continuation of what we were looking at last week, and that is last week, uh, Peter is, is taking um, really what our identity is in the person of Jesus Christ, and now he's saying you need to apply that by doing good, and doing good even though uh, you may suffer for it. Now, the challenge with this is that if you talk to anybody, so if we went down to Davenport, downtown Davenport, and began to poll some people there, and if we said, you know, if we said something uh, like verse 8 to them, do you think we should have unity of mind or sympathy towards one another? or brotherly love, or a tender heart towards one another? Or do you think we should have a humble mind? Or or we might even say them the most obvious, and that is, do you think we should do good to each other? I'm going to think that the majority answer to those questions would be yes. This is what we need in our world today. So the problem is not that God is calling us to do good or that we should do good. The the rub really comes down to the question of who defines what is good? Who is the standard for goodness? Myself, or is there maybe someone else who is that standard? And so Peter then uh, says, Uh, to us in verse 15, in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy. 
Uh, that is, to identify him as, an, as other than, uh, much like the sun in our solar system. If you think about it, there in, in the solar system, there is the, the sun, which is unique of itself uh, versus the planets and the dust and the asteroids that are, that are out there. No, the, the sun is unique unto itself and a great delight to us. Uh, we woke up to this morning and actually could see it bright and shiny. Uh, it's a delight, but it's also destructive. And so he says, oh no, you need to, uh, verse 15, regard Christ the Lord as holy. Um, In other words, your definition of goodness and how good gets itself worked out into the hearts and lives of individuals within different contexts must be determined by God's holiness. He's the one who determines what is good, and that's the rub. For the rub comes as we begin to think about the different circumstances in which we are to be good good to people. And so we begin to think uh, with regards to our racial diversity. How do we do good in those contexts? Or we would think of maybe the LGBT uh, issues that have come up. Uh, How do we be good in those contexts? Uh, When we begin to think about an unwanted pregnancy, how are we to treat someone in a good way in those contexts? And that is where the rub is. The rub is is that uh, we uh, who claim Christ as Lord, as the one who is holy, that's when we become those who are in the minority. Somebody's phone's ringing there, there you go. I have that to take out our new puppy outside every two hours to go pee, so I just, (laughs) boy, immediately immediately got me going. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so that's the rub. The rub is, is not just that we do good, but we have to do good within the context of God being the one who is the holy one. And so when we do that, now uh, the supermajority becomes the super minority. Everybody says, yes, we should do good. But when we do it in the context of God being our authority, the authority for the standard of goodness, that is when we become the minority. And that is what, uh, that is whom uh, 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 Peter is uh, writing to today, and uh, we are those readers now, uh, those who are reading his text, recognizing that, yes, he is, uh, we are those who are in the minority. So uh, what, uh, what Peter does is he brings us back to the gospel. Interestingly enough, three times he returns back to the gospel, he returns back to the person of Jesus Christ. So if you don't have your Bibles out yet, have your Bibles out now. This will help you a little bit uh, in, in following along. But in, in First, in chapter 1, verses 18 through 21, Peter focuses in on the justifying power of the gospel. The justifying power of the gospel. Look at chapter 1, verse 18. Knowing that you were ransomed in the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him for the for, gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. The justifying power of the gospel. 
Peter then returns to the gospel a little bit later. Chapter 2, verses 22 through 25. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. And when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were strained like sheep, and now have returned to the shepherd and overseers of your souls. Look at there, verse 24. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Here is the focus of the sanctifying power of the gospel. Now he returns to the gospel again in our passage where we have the Listen to this. This is, this, is, this is it. The victorious power of the gospel. It's in our passage this morning where Peter wants us to know this. He, he wants us to have a clear understanding of the victorious power of the gospel, that that is what is sufficient for us then to do good in the minority. So Peter begins, and where we'll go is he begins with the cross, and then he's going to take us to the resurrection and then ends with the ascension. So the victorious reality of the cross, the victorious reality of the cross. Look at verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. There will be times in one's life when God wills for you to suffer for doing good. And you can rejoice, for this is God's blessing on your life. First, because you are following in the footsteps of your Lord. See, look at verse 17. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for evil, for Christ also suffered once for sins. God wills for his people to suffer for doing good. Peter knew all about suffering. Matter of fact, within weeks of Christ's ascension into heaven, Peter and John were put into custody in Jerusalem for healing a lame beggar in the name of Jesus Christ. And it was that last part in the name of Jesus Christ which got him into trouble. Um, as you heard, I'm the headmaster at Morningstar uh, Academy, and one of my jobs, um, part of my responsibilities is to raise money for scholarships and for other capital projects that are going on. And I have been unequivocally told by several companies that they will not give to any nonprofit who mentions the name Jesus Christ. And so Peter and John were ordered and threatened not to use the name of Jesus again when they did good. So it was okay to do good, just don't mention the name, like healing a man who had been lame for 40 years. And so this is what Peter and uh, John did in, uh, in Acts chapter 4. Let me read that for you. He, he said, when they were released, 
They went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plots in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and, and while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed to the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And, and so they continued they continued to do good in the name of Jesus and the Jewish leaders held up their end of the bargain and jailed them a second time. And this time they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus. And then so they reacted uh, in this way. Again, in Acts chapter, actually Acts chapter 5, just simply this way. They left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Peter regarded Christ, the Lord, as holy and thus knew what it meant to suffer for his name. See, this word suffer is found 17 times in 1 Peter. Peter Later writes in chapter 4, we'll read it later, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes to you, upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Or Paul wrote to Timothy, he said, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Which is why, uh, which is why we could translate the first phrase in verse 19. Look now, now back to our passage. Uh, why we could translate... Um, uh, this first phrase, for even Christ suffered. In, in God's upside-down kingdom, the greatest, the one whom Israel was looking for, the one whom the, was the fulfillment of God's covenant to uh, Abraham to bless the world, in this upside-down kingdom, the king came to suffer. And so you are blessed to follow in his footsteps. But God's blessing is also on your life because suffering always has redemptive purposes. Always has redemptive purposes. To know this brings comfort for we know our suffering for good has a redemptive person, purpose. See, this was God's will for his Christ, his anointed one, to, that he should suffer to the point of death, middle of verse uh, 18, uh, for the righteous, for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Death's purpose, excuse me, Christ's death had a purpose that Jesus might bring us to God. Now, here's the beauty of the Greek. Uh, righteous is in the singular, Jesus, 
That's who that's referring to. And it, it's for the unrighteous, which is in a plural, which is everyone else who will rest and trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Packed within this simple phrase, uh, again, uh, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Packed in this simple phrase is a grand truth, and it's called imputation. It's the great exchange. Jesus takes my sin and dies a sinner's death, and in exchange, he gives me his righteousness, and that's given over to my account. I get a righteousness that is outside myself, called as alien righteousness, as Luther liked to call it, that the Father accepts on my behalf, and thus regards or counts me and declares me righteous. The will of the Father was for his son to do the greatest good and to suffer for it so that his enemies might be made right and thus brought to him so that people formerly enemies of God are now friends of God. And notice and notice there, it is a finished work once for sins. We, we can't add, we cannot add anything to what Christ has done. For his sacrifice was once for sins. Your attendance this morning adds nothing to his sacrifice. Your setting of God's word, your memorizing of God's word, your, your attempts to do good, uh, uh, none of that is, adds anything to his sacrifice for it was absolutely sufficient for your sins. Jesus paid it all. Christ's death was victorious over sin we know this because Jesus declared on the cross those simple words. He said, it is finished. And we, we know this victory by what Peter then writes next there in verse 18. He says, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. See, at, at the moment when he breathed his last breath, he was dead in the flesh. But now here's how we know he was victorious. He was alive in the spirit. But when he died on the cross, he was alive to be re, uh, he, uh, he was alive, and he was going to be reunited with his body three days later in the resurrection. But when he died, death did not have rule over him. Death did not have its victory. The sting of death was removed because the law was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He was the fulfillment of the law. A perfect lamb had to die for the for sins, and there's only one lamb worthy of such a demand, and that is the person of Jesus Christ. Thus, while his flesh was in the grave, his spirit was alive. He was living within the spiritual realm, which is why and which is what he anticipated and why he gave these redemptive words of hope to the repentant thief there on the cross next to him, today you will be with me in paradise. See, Christ's 
Suffering had a redemptive purpose, and your suffering for doing good will also have redemptive purposes. Now, obviously not like Christ, because Christ's sacrifice was sufficient uh, for our sins. But he continues to use us who suffer for doing good for redemptive purposes within individuals' lives. And so Alex reminded us of this uh, several weeks ago, chapter 2, verse 12. It says there, Peter says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And that day of visitation is when the gospel penetrates the dead heart, brings life to it, and they say, I glorify God. Or... Chapter 3, verse 1, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if they do not obey the word, that is, obey the word, obey the gospel, trust in the gospel, trust in Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, although they do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. And of course, they're always the curious who are wondering why we do what we do, why we're willing to suffer for doing good. And so verse 15, last week we discovered this. We are to regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. The victorious cross teaches us that you are blessed for suffering, for doing good, because first you're following in the footsteps uh, of our Lord and you are blessed because you now have redemptive purposes. And then thirdly, the victorious cross teaches us that you are blessed because suffering clarifies spiritual realities. Suffering clarifies some spiritual realities. You know, there's nothing like getting sick, right? <laughs> there's nothing like getting sick to kind of clarify what's really important in life. Um, and it's the same way with regards to suffering for doing good. It begins to clarify some things that are truly important for our lives. So here we go. Let's dive in 19 and 20. In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through Water. Now, what Peter is doing here is he's still focusing on the victorious reality of the cross and is now taking his readers back to a familiar passage from the Old Testament of which they would be and have been familiar with and which we are very much familiar with as well. See, there are five interpretations to what is going on here in verses 19 to 20, but I lean on the one of which I know that, God, that as God is, is ministering to us his word 2,000 years after the time that this has been written, that he would be using that which we have in front of us and that is his own word. We're familiar with Noah. See, things are not as they seem. Christ's death, from a physical perspective, was not what it seemed to be. And when he died, the religious leaders thought, oh, finally, it's over. When he died, the disciples thought, oh, it's over. But there are greater realities than what we see. 
There's a greater realities that a believer must keep in mind. There's greater realities that as we're suffering, we need to keep into us. And so suffering is a gracious gift to confirm those realities. See, look at verse 19. It begins with these two words, in which, in which, or as that just goes right back to verse 18, in the spirit, or we could say in the spiritual realm. In the spiritual realm, he went and proclaimed to spirits in prison. Now, there's three questions we obviously have to answer here. First is, uh, who are these spirits, and when did Jesus go to them, and then what did he proclaim to them? Well, here's the first spiritual reality, and that is that we are spiritual beings. That we are spiritual beings. Uh, So, who are these spirits? Well, the word for spirits can be translated angelic beings, or they can be translated human beings, and only the immediate context can really help us to know how to interpret this particular uh, word. So what are their clues? Well, look at verse 20. 20 gives us the, the clues of who these are. These spirits are beings which did not formally obey. Do you see that in verse 20? They did not formally obey. And from this phrase, we know when they did not obey. They did not obey while the ark was being prepared in the days of Noah. So nowhere in scripture are angels ever said to have disobeyed during the building of the ark. So who were disobedient in that time? People. (laughs) It's a safe conclusion to come to that Peter's readers understood spirits to be unrepentant people who although they heard God's coming judgment and their need to turn from sin and turn to God's means of salvation, the ark, they refused, that is, they did not obey. See, the first spiritual reality that Peter wants us, his readers, to remember is that while we are dealing with, that, that we are, that while we're dealing with physical beings, uh, that is people who have the potential to make our lives miserable, uh, it could be our boss, it could be our neighbor, as we see them, we see them as physical beings, but he's reminding them, oh no, they're more than just physical beings, they're spirits, they are living souls. And in some way, in our, in our, just in our, by the common grace, what do we say when, when the, the airplane goes down? What do we say when the boat is sunk? We say there were 35 souls lost that day. But it's tempting. As we're interacting with uh, that coworker, when we're interacting with that boss, when we're interacting with that teacher, when we're interacting with that colleague, when we're interacting with that student, that, that, uh, that uh, child, when we're interacting, what do we see them as? We see them as just physical beings that are in the way, causing troubles, difficult to get along with. Oh no. Now when we're doing good in the name of Christ, who are these people that are, uh, who are against us? They're living souls. They're spiritual, they're spiritual beings. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he said, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, 
he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So it's as if we have to put on new glasses to see the spiritual realities of those around us. They will live as spirits, those around us. They will, we will, they will live as living spirits for eternity, imprisoned in their sin apart from God, or they are spirits who are new creations, remade to live in eternity with God. So Peter has defined for us who these spirits are. They consist of men and women and children who lived in Noah's day, who rejected God's standard of righteousness, lived life on their terms, and rejected God's authority over them. And now this side of judgment, they are imprisoned in sinful, God-rejecting spiritual state without any hope. So when did Jesus proclaim to these spirits who did not obey while the ark was being prepared? Well, suffering confirms spiritual realities, and the second spiritual reality is that God speaks through human instruments. See, at first blush in verses, uh, verse 18, it seems that either Jesus went and proclaimed right after he died or after he rose again is when he made his proclamations. However, Peter is not continuing his thought of ver- in verse 13, but making a transition in his argument. So it could easily be read this way. Christ was made alive in the spiritual realm, verse 18, and he did also did something else in the spiritual realm, verses 19 and 20. See, the natural time for Christ to preach to Noah's neighbors was during Noah's day. And the natural instrument of choice to preach, the natural instrument was Noah. Just in their own day, the natural instrument to speak of the gospel to your neighbor is you. See, remember back in verse 15 again, we're told always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. And it's not unusual that Peter would describe Christ preaching in this way. See, back in chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, he writes this. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. The Spirit of Christ in them. So it's not unusual that as Peter is writing this, that it would be Christ who is speaking through Noah, but Noah is that human instrument of which whom God is using to bring the good news to his neighbors. It is Peter in his second letter who viewed and called Noah a herald of righteousness, herald being the the noun of this verb, proclaim. Moses, the proclaimer. I mean, excuse me, Noah, the proclaimer. So what would have Noah's neighbors heard from the lips of Noah as the spirit of Christ preached through him? It would be a message of repentance. 
a message of repentance. Turn away from your way of life. Turn away from your attempts to make life right and turn to God's. This is the message that was being preached. And this is the right message to preach when people are disobeying, not obeying the gospel. That is not trusting in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. It's a message that God calls us, his people, to preach. And he calls us to preach because God is patient. And God was patient in Noah's day, and he is patient today. Again, in the second letter, Peter writes, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, like me, (laughs) but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So God takes human words, and those don't have to be clever words, they don't have to be fancy words, they don't have to be religious vocabulary. God takes us, he takes our ordinary human words about Jesus and he makes them spiritually powerful. So tell your story. Tell your story. It's a good story of the gospel that was reached to you. Tell your story, that's all you have to do. You got a very unique story that God is using you as a human instrument to communicate to those who are your neighbors. God speaks through human instruments. Number three, suffering confirms this spiritual reality, and that is the spiritual beings who hear the gospel and reject it will spend eternity in an imprisoned state of separation from all that is good, God himself. So if we could just put it this way, an eternal state of hell is real. In the day Noah preached, he did not preach a message of condemnation. Condemnation is a message where there is no hope, there is no gospel. They were not in prison in Noah's day. That condition changed the moment they lost their lives in an overwhelming flood of God's judgment forever to be kept from all that is good. So sadly, one other detail that Peter reminds us of about the ark, and it's 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 a fourth reality, and that is that a few, a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Number four, spiritual reality. Apart from the work of God, we will reject his gospel. Very few responded to the opportunity for salvation in Noah's day. See, we're born dead. We're born dead to God and, and, and our own way that go, leads us to simple death for all eternity. Our only hope is a God who can give life to our dead souls. So who's going to do that? Who's not only going to die, but be raised from the dead to give life to whomever calls to him. Well, the victorious reality of the resurrection is where now Peter takes us in verse 21. 
moves from the victorious reality of the cross and now he's moving us to the victorious reality of the resurrection. Uh, Verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we have these words at the very end of verse 20, through water, through water, leads Peter to direct our attention now to baptism, water baptism, corresponding to the ark and the water that the ark went through. In other words, it was necessary for water to be present for the ark to actually save. And so in the same way, with regards to the cross, the cross needed what? The end of verse 21, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Through the water, through the resurrection. Both are necessary in order for there to know that there is victory for all those who call to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. So what does Peter mean that baptism saves us? <laughs> oh, Peter. <laughs> Why'd you trouble us? Well, we know it's not the physical act of being baptized. That is the outward action does not save. Uh, he writes, even right in our passage for us, thank you, not as a removal of dirt from the body. No, Peter is turning our attention to the spiritual reality. Baptism saves. What does he, what does he say? It saves as an appeal to God for a good conscience. We are saved when one humbly and so very simply asks God for a good conscience. And a good conscience is an assurance that every sin has been forgiven. Hmm. The Hebrew writer expresses, expresses it this way. He writes, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. As we come through the New Testament, as we particularly come to the epistles, we discover that baptism is a reminder to us of an identity that we already have, a spiritual identity, and that as Jesus Christ died, and so he was raised again, so we have died and have risen again to new life in Christ. And so baptism is a reminder to us, it's really a sign to us, that as we have appealed to God for a clean conscience, God, give me a clean conscience. Save me from the reminder of all of that sin that I know and you know. When we appeal to God for that, God says, your sins are forgiven. Your conscience is cleared. Every single sin that you have committed, will commit, died, Christ died for you. Christ paid that penalty. Christ is the one who died the sinner's death, your death, on your behalf. So baptism is a reminder. It's a sign. But baptism is also a seal, just like 
The resurrection is a seal. How do I know, God, that what Jesus did on the cross was sufficient for my sins? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When Christ rose from the dead, what was already true, it is finished. What was already true was publicly proclaimed to all humanity. Christ's resurrection is a proclamation. Your sins will be forgiven in the name of Jesus Christ. So when you are in the minority, in doing good, in the name of Jesus, he says, look to the cross look to the resurrection, and now look to the third, the ascension. Who has gone, Jesus Christ, verse 22, has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Wow. The victorious reality of the ascension. In the ancient world, to sit at the right hand of a king signified that one acted with the king's authority and power. Jesus Christ, though he possessed infinite power of authority for all of eternity, he had not previously exercised this power in the role of the person who was both God and man. Jesus, the God-man, is now at the right hand of God and has authority uh, over both the seen and the unseen spiritual world, the angels, the authorities, and the powers, good and evil spiritual beings. So the ascension confirms this reality. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The victorious power of the cross, the victorious power of the resurrection, and the victorious power of the ascension calls us to be people who do good in the name of Jesus Christ, even when we are in the minority. Like Noah and his family, we are a minority surrounded by either marginalizing, mocking, or maligning unbelievers. Like Noah, God is calling us to a righteous life in the midst of a wicked world. Like Noah, who witnessed boldly to those around him, Peter is exhorting us to do the same, even if one suffers, to bring others to God. Like Noah, we need to recognize that judgment is inevitable within God's timing. Like Noah's neighbors, we must recognize that our neighbors may be in the face of dire warnings of judgment. They may just keep on living life as if there will be no accountability. Like Noah's day, God is patiently waiting for sinners to repent. Like Noah, God intends to proclaim his good news through us. Like Noah, we are to regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Like Noah's day, we must be prepared that only a few may be saved. Only a clear understanding 
uh, the victorious reality of the gospel is sufficient to do good in the minority. Father, please help us. Father, um, please take this text and make it alive to us in some way. Father, please help us to be people. Cause us to be people who do good in the name of Christ, knowing that we may be maligned, that we may be mocked, that we may be marginalized. Father, help us to be reminded that things are not as they seem. Father, you are working through us, human instruments, to bring spiritual life, to bring redemption to those around us. Help us to see people as living souls and not just irritants and irritations and trouble and difficulties, but help us to see them for who they really are, how you see them. Father, you're patient. You are patient with us. You're so, so patient. Father, we need repentance. We need you to give us faith to believe that truly the gospel is that which is victorious over all things, that the cross is sufficient, that the proclamation of that sufficiency is in the resurrection, and that in that resurrection, Christ is now at your right hand as he ascended and is a ruler over all authorities, powers, and dominions. Father, the, the prayer we have is that you would break through our own hearts, have authority in our hearts, we pray. Father, we thank you for we thank you for this time. Pray that you would, if there's anyone here, Father, who has yet to rest and trust in Christ and the cross, that they're still working, striving to make life right. Father, would you bring them to the end of that and bring them to the cross where the work is finished? And would they trust in you today as their Lord and Savior? Please work. Only you can save. So please save. Father, we're thankful for the supper that we're about to take. We're thankful, Father, that things are not as they seem. Oh, no, Christ isn't present in the actual bread and the, and the, and the wine. But, Father, you're still spiritually present. And you're spiritually, still spiritually feeding us, even through this this bread and cup that you are giving us to take again this day. Please feed us. Please feed us, we pray. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.